Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Uh, my name is Bill Massey, and um, I am grateful that your session has invited me to serve the Lord with you here for a season as your interim senior pastor. Uh, we are going to have an opportunity to get to know one another better in the weeks ahead and perhaps at the meet and greet in a couple of weeks. But let me just say briefly at this point that uh, I've been a minister in the PCA for many years now in different capacities, first as an associate at a church in the eastern suburbs of Pittsburgh, uh, that's Steelers country, and then after that as a church planter and pastor in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, that is Eagles country, or Eagles, as uh, we say there. Uh, lots of states have Lancaster towns and Lancaster counties, but only Pennsylvania has a Lancaster. We just kind of run it all together. But um, a few years ago, my Ministry changed when I began serving as an interim pastor uh, as in partnership with the McGowan Group, who is consulting with Covenant Church right now. Interim pastor ministry is an emerging ministry in the PCA. It's very valuable, and I love it. I enjoy it very much. Uh, it is just a blessing to be with the church and just serve it as God is bringing it through a transition to its next permanent minister, and it's such a privilege to be here with you. And if there's anything I can do to help you, please contact me. If you need somebody to pray with, please contact me. I would be happy to spend time with you. It, while I'm here, I'm just going to say this. Uh, while I'm here, you're going to hear me use inclusive language from time to time. Our church, we, and uh, you may wonder why does he use language like that when he's not here in any particular permanent capacity. It's because of this. All of us need a church family. Where would we be without our church family? And so as long as God has Valerie and Will and me here uh, with you, you're our church family. And we embrace you with open arms as our brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to thank the various members of the church staff who were so friendly and helpful and patient with me this past week as I was getting settled into my first week. Also, it was a blessing to be with your elders uh, for session on Wednesday evening to do the work of the church, but also to pray for a number of you. You have some very fine elders here at Covenant Church. You should be most grateful. But finally, I'd like to thank your pastor, uh, Jake Bennett, for all of his wisdom and all of his assistance and his very valuable support. Thank you, brother, very much for that. Well, where should we begin? Our transition together, I, you know, I thought and prayed about that. I'd like for us to begin by once again reminding ourselves of the great hope we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Savior, He is our Lord, and He reigns over all. And so let's give our attention now to Paul's first prayer in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Uh, this is a familiar passage, I'm sure, to many of you. If you want to know what Paul's theology of the church is, that theology is found in his letter to the Ephesians. Uh, this is a prayer that could provide a series of sermons 
but I'm not going to deal with all the particulars of this prayer. I'm simply going to call our attention to three very important matters that encourage our hope in our Lord Jesus this morning. Please hear the word of the Lord. Paul says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let us pray. Blessed are you, O God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're the source of wisdom and knowledge So grant to us now in this time a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we may know what is the hope to which we have been called. Reveal yourself to us that we may know you and love you. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. I understand there are some remarkable instances of the two becoming one that may be seen along the coast of California. As you know, there are great forests of redwoods along the coast of California, and I have read that redwoods, I've not seen this, but I've read that redwoods grow unlike any other kind of tree. Two redwoods may grow up side by side a few feet apart from one another, and And then at some point, after many years, the two trees may actually touch and bark covers that point of contact so that a union is formed and the two trees actually become one. Uh, Near Santa Cruz, for example, one tree grew at an angle to another so that contact was made a few hundred feet up or so, and at that point, the two trees became one. And that's not the only instance of this. There are other similar instances, but these fascinating instances of the two becoming one in the natural world have even more profound counterparts in the kingdom of God. And and Paul is referring to those unions in our passage. I want you to think about this. The most remarkable union in history took place, didn't it? Just more than little more than 2,000 years ago when deity was joined to humanity in the womb of the Virgin Mary. We celebrate this each Christmas time, don't we? The Son of God united His deity to our humanity in the womb of Mary and was born of her. Jesus Christ is the God-man. He is Godhood 
united and joined to humanity. But that union of deity and humanity and Jesus enabled another great union. You see, you and I had been of the trunk, if you will, of Father Adam, the natural head of the race. We were spiritually dead in union with Adam, but Jesus Christ, as the God-man, the perfect mediator between God and man, gave himself on the cross for our sins to bring us to God, to reconcile us to God, and bring us in now to this vital living union with God. And that union happened when the Spirit of God gave us faith in Christ as Savior. And as a result, we became united to Him, much like a branch in a trunk, so that we are in Christ now, in His life, in His in us. And Paul glories in that union, in that prayer, because you see, as we face all sorts of unforeseeable challenges in this life, this is the basis for our hope. Brothers and sisters, we are not alone. We are in Christ. We face these challenges in Christ. And, and, and why is this? Well, notice in this prayer how Paul refers to these three successive events in the life of our Savior that puts this hope beyond any possibility of doubt. First, God raised Christ from the dead. Second, God seated or exalted Christ as Lord and King over all. And then third, uh, God seated Christ as head over all for the blessing of the church. Because you and I are united to Christ, who is risen, who is exalted, and who is seated, God's surpassing power working all together for our good is beyond any possibility of doubt. How deeply encouraging this is, how, how absolutely reassuring this is. So let's consider how these three events guarantee God's surpassing power to those who are in union with Christ first God has guaranteed His power to us through Christ, our risen Savior. Paul considers God's immeasurable power working for us by looking first at the resurrection. Now, during His earthly life, Jesus prophesied that God would raise Him from the dead after the religious leaders and the per political leaders had abused Him and persecuted Him and crucified Him. And at one point, Jesus said in the Gospel, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn Him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Now Christ prophesied he would be raised from the dead, victor over sin and judgment and death, and it seemed impossible at the time because the entire record of humanity is that men are born and then they die, and yet Jesus claimed that after he died, he would raise triumphantly from the dead. And the scriptures assure us that on the third day, God did in fact raise Jesus from the grave, not merely as a private event to be enjoyed by a few, but, but also as a public event rejoiced in by many. Paul testifies in his first letter to the Corinthians, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time 
most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. But what is this grand display of God's power in Christ's resurrection guarantee to us? Two basic things. First, I am reconciled to God. I am reconciled to God. Over and over, let us remember with thanksgiving that in raising Christ from the dead, God publicly declared that He accepted Christ's death as a sufficient payment for all of my sin. All of it. I mean, my sin was paid in full by the blood of Christ, and I wonder, have I accepted that payment? Have I accepted that payment as God's free gift to me? I don't care, my friend, what your fails are or your regrets are that you're struggling with here today. Rest now in the all-sufficient payment of Christ's blood for your sins as God's gift to you. That's the starting place for us. There was an old Bible teacher, his name was R.A. Torrey, and I love his words. He put it this way, he says, I look at the cross of Christ and I know that atonement has been made for my sins. I look at the open sepulcher and the arisen and ascended Lord and I know that the atonement has been accepted. There no longer remains a single sin on me, no matter how many or how great my sins may have been. My sins may have been as high as the mountains, but in the light of the resurrection, that atonement that covers them is as high as heaven. My sins may have been as deep as the ocean, but in the light of the resurrection, the atonement that swallows them up is as deep as eternity. I am reconciled to God. And something more, I am risen with Christ. You know, sometimes we speak of Christ's resurrection as the forerunner of our own when He comes again. Uh, we understand Christ's resurrection as the picture and the proof of our own resurrection on that last day. And it is, but it's also true that we don't have to wait until the last day for Christ's resurrection power to be revealed in us, working all together for our good. All Christians, all who believe, the great and the small, have already been spiritually raised up to new life with Christ. Before God powerfully called you to faith in Jesus, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 and following, we didn't read that passage that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were in union with Father Adam, the natural head of the race. You were spiritually dead in Him. But now by faith in Christ, this very same power which raised Christ from the dead has also raised you to new spiritual life. Paul continues in chapter 2, verse 4 and following, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
because I am joined and united to my risen Savior and He is joined to me, I may be assured, as Paul wrote the Philippians, that God who has begun this good work in me will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. But in the meantime, as Paul also writes to the Philippians, the Spirit of God is working in me now both to will and to work for His good pleasure. God is at work in my life in that way. And oh, how I need that hope because all of us have feet of clay, don't we? All of us struggle with a spiritual Achilles heel. All of us struggle with particular weaknesses and besetting sins, don't we? And I wonder what some of yours are. For some of us, it's pride. For others of us, it's covetousness and envy. Some of us are struggling with anxiety and fear. Some of us struggle with anger and wrath and lust. And brothers and sisters, when we face squarely, I mean, when we face squarely the power of indwelling sin and our own weaknesses, we may wonder rather despairingly, what can I do? I mean, we are grateful for the forgiveness of God that we have through faith in Christ's blood for our sins, but we also want to follow His good plan for our lives. And, and we may wonder in the face of strong temptation, where does the power come from to enable us to do that? Oh, the powers of temptation seem so strong at times. And the presence of the Spirit in our lives seems so weak at times. But here's something that may startle you. Here's something that may startle you, and this is something you need to take to heart. You see, our most basic need at such times is not to do something. It's not to do something. But instead to acknowledge by faith what God has already done for us in Christ. He has made us a new creation through union with our risen Savior. This old person that I was before I believed has died with Christ. And by the immeasurable greatness of God's power, which raised Christ to new life, I have been raised up to new life with Him. We celebrate this at baptism, don't we? We are now those over whom sin no longer has the dominion. That's the gospel truth, whether I feel it or not. By faith we must say, I am a new creature in Christ. I am no longer the old creature I thought I was. I am a child of God in whom the resurrection spirit dwells. And so, empowered by the resurrection spirit, I must persevere in obedience by faith and not by feeling. God's grace is sufficient for my every need and His power is made perfect in my weakness. That encourages me. It's made perfect in my weakness. As I learn to walk by faith and not by feeling, as I learn to walk by faith in what God has revealed and what He has promised to me. And second, God has guaranteed His power to us through Christ our exalted King. God's immeasurable power was publicly guaranteed to us not only by Christ's triumphant resurrection from the dead, but also by His glorious exaltation in heaven. Paul says that following Christ's resurrection, God seated Him at His right hand 
in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Well, the Gospels in the first chapter of the book of Acts record how following his resurrection, Jesus ministered over a period of 40 days. Can you imagine being ministered to by the risen Savior for 40 days? For 40 days, a period to large groups and small, teaching them about the kingdom of God. But at the end of those 40 days, he gathered his disciples on the Mount of Olives outside Jerusalem. And then before their awestruck eyes, the Father elevated him into the shimmering glory cloud of his presence. At that point, Christ's earthly ministry had concluded and his heavenly ministry had begun. And God crowned Christ's saving work with honor and glory and God made all the rulers and authorities and powers and lords subject to him as our king. I think this imagery reminds us of Joshua's victory over the five Amorite kings. After their defeat, Joshua brought them forth and calling his generals, he said, come near, put your foot on the necks of these kings. It was a It was a sign of their subjugation to his authority and his power. But you see, that is what God has done for us in Christ. Now, how is God's power guaranteed to us by Christ's exaltation? First, we may be assured of Christ's personal ascendancy. I mean, during his earthly ministry, our Lord stood, didn't he, before the storm. And he he commanded the raging elements... Peace be still, and the winds and the waves evade him. Well, how much more, now that he is exalted and enthroned in heaven, can he govern and overrule all these lesser powers which threaten us, overturning all of them to our ultimate good? This truth is one which Charles Wesley captured so wonderfully. One of his hymns, wherewith, O God, shall I draw near. Listen to his words. He says, See where before the throne he stands and pours the all-prevailing prayer, points to a sight and lifts his hands and shows that I am graven there. He ever lives for me to pray. He prays that I with him may reign. Amen to what my Lord thus say. Jesus, thou canst not pray in vain. And second, we may be assured of Christ's personal availability. Because Jesus reigns in the heavenly sanctuary and through the Holy Spirit, He has now poured out upon us. He is powerfully and personally present to help and support us wherever we are. And whatever the circumstances may be that you and I are facing, as the great Stephen was stoned to death by God's enemies at Acts 7, he tells, we read, He, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Jesus is praying for us now. And through His Spirit, He is always available. There is no rule. There is no reign greater than Christ. There's no authority that can thwart His purposes. There is no power that can withstand His. No 
dominion that can prevent his advance. Christ is the exalted king over all. He wields his omnipotent power for us. And then last, God has guaranteed his power to us through Christ, our living head. Verses 22 through 23, Paul closes this section by this making this amazingly comforting statement. He says that God has put all things under Christ's feet as head over all. Christ is the supreme head of government. But then he adds a further, even more glorious truth. It's a staggering one. God gave Christ as head over all for the blessing of the church. Christ reigns for the glory of God and for the good and the blessing of his church. He put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You see, all of God's sovereignty is mediated through Christ and all of his sovereign power is for the good of the church. This wonderful truth is reinforced by two ways that Paul refers to the church here. Both of these ways emphasize how intimate and full of life and love our union with Christ is as our living head. We are the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. We, that's the first thing that Paul says in this idea that the church is the body of Christ is so familiar to us by now that we sometimes forget that, you know, that Paul is the only biblical author who describes the church in this way. And we wonder, where did Paul get this truth? Was this an idea that developed because of his experience on the Damascus Road when he, when he met the risen and exalted Christ? The Lord appeared to him as the great persecutor and chief of the church. He chastised him saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I mean, did those words suggest to Paul on later reflection how intimate this Relationship between Christ and his people is a relationship not unlike that which exists between a head and its body. I mean, we may never know where Paul got this, but, but few things he could say would so emphasize how intimate and inseparable is this union between Christ and his people. We are the body of Christ. But then Paul says further that we are the fullness of Christ. We are the fullness of Christ. We are the representation of Christ in this world. I mean, if the former picture emphasized the intimacy between Christ and his people, this picture emphasizes Christ's life animating his people. Here is Christ filling his people and his body with his spirit and life and gifts and graces and power. What's that mean? It means that God's sovereign power is far, far more than a creedal truth that we affirm and confess week after week in worship. It's a power that is now mine through union with Christ, my living head. It is a power I must learn to rely on by faith because I am bought by Christ's blood and born of His Spirit. Our former home in Pennsylvania was two miles away from another home. 
where I would behold an amazing sight each spring. There was a large dogwood tree in the front yard of that home. It was a large one. I assume it was rather old. And, and each spring it would bloom half in white and half in pink. Half in white and half in pink. Uh, we have a watercolor of that tree on the mantle in our home in Red Bank right now. And I love that tree. It was a picture of what we're talking about here to me. And I would visit that tree each spring. And sometimes the sun was, you know, situated behind the tree and the sunlight as it shone through those translucent blossoms of white and pink was so lovely. And I would wonder if... Perhaps the branch of a pink dogwood was grafted into the trunk of a white dogwood. But regardless of the story, the branch lives and it blossoms, not by itself, but in union with the trunk. And if that trunk could talk, it would say something like this. It would say, I am in the trunk and the life of the trunk is in me. And so it is with us. You see, grafted into Christ by faith, he is our living head and we are his body in fullness. We are in him and his powerful life is within us. And you see, with that truth in mind, one of my favorite preachers, the late D.M. Lloyd-Jones, comforts us with these words. He says, as we contemplate life and all its difficulties, and as we are tempted by Satan to feel that it all is impossible, and that we cannot go on because we are so weak and the difficulty so baffling, we must remind ourselves of this truth and say, I am a very small and unimportant member, but I am a member of the body of Christ. I am in him. I am his fullness. And therefore, whatever may be true of me personally, the life of the head is in me. I am in touch with him. His vital energy is in me. As our eyes are open to this truth, we may take fresh courage, Lloyd-Jones says, and take up our task again and say... In Christ I cannot fail. I must not fail. He will not allow me to fail. Praise be to God for His grace and mercy to sinners like us. What hope we have in Christ. Let us pray. Almighty God, we praise you and thank you for this grand union you accomplished over 2,000 years ago where deity was joined to humanity in the womb of Mary. And we're also grateful for this wonderful union that Christ the God-man accomplished for us. As God and man, he gave himself for our sins to reconcile us forever to you, to bring us into your loving arms forever. Father, we thank you.
for what you have accomplished in our lives. We were like a branch joined to the trunk of Adam, dead in our sin, but you set your spirit into our lives. You illumined our hearts to see that Jesus died for us. You enabled us to come to him and receive him as our Savior and our Lord. And, and having done that, you have now united us to him as our living head, and you have made us his fullness. Father, I pray for all my brothers and sisters here that you will encourage them as they're facing challenges that they do not face them alone. They face them with Christ to whom they are united. They face these challenges with his life and power at work in them. They face these challenges according to your promise that this good work you've started in us is one you will not cease to perfect until the day of our Lord's appearing. Lord, continue to work in us to will and do your good pleasure. And Father, I pray for our church. In your sovereignty now, you are bringing us through this great transition of preparing to open up a new chapter of church life with a new permanent minister. As you are bringing us through this challenge, encourage us, Lord, of this hope that we have in Jesus, our Savior and our Lord, who reigns over all for our blessing and progress. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.